Let's go into Dr. Ravello's case. Actually, this is a patient that I saw very recently, and I'm like, not the second opinion, the third opinion. And basically, it's a 51-year-old male that initially presented with no symptoms whatsoever, and on a PSA level that it was performed, it was 57.6. He was then referred to the urologist to perform a transrectal biopsy of the prostate gland, and the pathology report reveals that most of the biopsies were consistent with prostatic adenocarcinoma. It was perineural invasion present in both right and left posterior lobe. The Gleason score was 3 plus 4 equals 7, and a complete metastatic workup, including CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis, as well as a bone scan, reveals no evidence of metastatic disease. Can you talk a little bit more about the man himself and his social situation, what kind of work he does? Right. He was coming out of being uninsured at that time. So he had a business and he obviously was going through a lot of problems financially. But besides that, his style of life was very healthy. He used to do for many years, and he still does, weight training. And he keeps a healthy diet for most of his life. So in his past medical history, there are no other illnesses, obviously, and he has no family history of prostate cancer. Any reason to think, or did you ask him about anabolic steroids? Yes, I did. Basically because I used to do weight training myself. But he told me no, he has never used any medication. So Judd, how would you be thinking this case through? Well, this is very similar to the 48-year-old gentleman we talked about a few minutes ago, but just a couple of interesting points. He was coming out of an uninsured situation, if I understood you correctly, which is, I wonder how often that's responsible for delay in diagnosis of prostate cancer. He shows up at age 51 with a PSA of 57.6. And again, just to digress back to the guy who was 48, who had a PSA of 9, to put that in perspective, in the studies that have been done on men in their 40s, so the median PSA for men in their 40s is 0.7. The 95th percentile is about 1.5 to 1.7, depending on which study you read. So whether that man is 48 with a PSA of 9 or 51 with a PSA of 57.6, we're talking about a serious rise in PSA. And both these cases, just by PSA alone, even if we assume that PSA is a reasonable semi-surrogate for prostate cancer volume, this gentleman is likely dealing with high-volume clinically localized prostate cancer. And even more compelling than the last case is that it's going to require a multidisciplinary approach. And again, it would be interesting, you know, what his clinical stage is. Is the tumor palpable and is the prostate gland fixed? I did a rectal examination part of my exam and the prostate was firm in both lobes, but it was no nodules palpable, obviously. So, you know, just from a pure surgical technical standpoint, you know, obviously uh, many of us are now shifting this idea to using radical prostatectomy as part of the initial step in a multidisciplinary process on young men like this. However, there becomes technical limits, and it's a gestalt. You know, certainly if one does a digital rectal exam and it's, you know, rock hard and the prostate feels fixed, particularly at the apex or the base, then that is concerning whether it's unresectable. And again, Dr. O talked earlier about using an endorectal MRI. I would say at our institution, we don't use it probably quite as often as you do. On the other hand, this would be a case where I would probably, if there was any concern about resectability 
and we were entertaining a radical prostatectomy, I would get an endorectal MRI because some patients may consent to the radical prostatectomy, but they would not consent to a radical cystoprostatectomy or they might not consent, well, no one would want to consent ahead of time to a temporary colostomy. On the other hand, if that would be a reasonable chance, patients may shy away from even surgery as a first step if it's really potentially going to involve a greater degree of risk with the operation. Final point is he might be a good candidate for a clinical trial, as we discussed on the last case, a neoadjuvant trial, or um, we even have a phase one at our institution of preoperative radiotherapy which is a homegrown trial to use 4,500 centigrade preoperatively to downsize or deactivate the neoplasia and then do radical prostatectomy after that. If he were going to go the radiation therapy, endocrine therapy route, what kind of specific regimen would he get at your place? And particularly how long, of when would the hormonal therapy be for? In this case, it would depend a lot on, I would try to assess his digital rectal exam and assess maybe the endorectal MRI. If he truly was a good old-fashioned stage C T3 case, then we would probably treat him like the BOLA trial with full-dose radiotherapy and three years of hormones if he was not going to be going on some type of clinical trial. Could you comment on the update of that database that was presented at ASCO? Well, my understanding was that when BOLA compared three years to six months, that the three-year dose won. And again, I hadn't had a chance to completely study it, but just the, the sound bite from ASCO was, if you have a guy who really has locally advanced prostate cancer, three years of hormone therapy is better than six months. William, can you kind of summarize what was presented, what your take was on that? Yeah, so this was a European version of locally advanced disease. These were very high-risk patients with bulky T3, T4 tumors. There was a percentage that had clinical node positivity very high risk. And in that study, the outcomes were superior in terms of progression-free survival and overall survival in the group that received the longer duration hormones. So I think most of our interpretations of this are that in those truly locally advanced patients, as Judd has pointed out, people with very bulky disease or node-positive disease who are getting radiotherapy, that those patients should continue to receive long-duration hormones. I think the problem, and it's an interesting This case, compared to the earlier one, brings up this difference, which is, what is high-risk disease? You know, what makes people high-risk? And we know that this has been evolving. We know that in the United States, true T3 cancers, people with locally advanced disease, are extremely rare now. They were very common a decade ago or 15 years ago before widespread PSA screening. They're very rare now. And what puts most people into high-risk categories, and he doesn't fit that, But the most common reason for high risk is, you know, two or three biopsies with Gleason 8, 9, or 10 with a non-palpable lesion and a low PSA. And the question is, should that patient, for example, be treated with the same three years? And there, I think the data is much less clear. How about this patient? I was going to ask Judd about this very high PSA. So there is a discrepancy here. He has intermediate risk features, 3 plus 4. You didn't say how many biopsies were positive. Was it all of his gland or one or, or two all biopsies? Of the biopsies all of the biopsies. Positive. So he so does have high volume. He's high volume, and all of this PSA may be coming from here, but there was this concept of a transition zone cancer where the prognosis was maybe a little bit better than the PSA may otherwise reflect. I wanted to hear whether Judd thought that was still an entity. One comment I'll make is that there's a huge discrepancy between the biopsy Gleason score and the radical prostatectomy Gleason score, even in the contemporary era. We actually just submitted a paper to one of the journals looking at our database with 
a large series, several thousand patients comparing biopsy Gleason to radical prostatectomy Gleason. It's not novel in that it's been reported before, although I think ours will be the largest series. And plus, it looks at a cohort or a subgroup of guys in the extended core biopsy era. I mean, some urologists would say, oh, you know, now that we're doing 10, 12, 14, 16, 20 biopsies, surely the biopsy Gleason scores correlate almost more closely with a radical. Well, they really don't. Bottom line, there's overall 50% discrepancy and four out of five of those, it's where the biopsy Gleason score underestimate what was actually in the radical specimen. And the more closely you look at the radical specimen with either hole mounting or close step sectioning, the higher the discrepancy is. So I would say in this patient, if he didn't elect to have a radical prostatectomy, there's a 40% chance that we will, in fact, either find Gleason 4 plus 3 equals 7 or 4 or 5 component in there as a predominant type. So again, if he wants to go the RT and hormonal therapy route, how long would you use the androgen deprivation recommend it? Again, depending on the digital rectal exam finding, probably three years. So can you talk about what happened with your discussions with this patient? Yes, obviously he went for several opinions with at least two urologists until he find one of the urologists decided to offer him radical surgery versus receiving hormonal deprivation plus radiation therapy. And he opted to have radical surgery. He finally underwent radical prostatectomy very recently, as a matter of fact, I think it was in the end of February of this year. On the pathology report, it was interesting because it reveals that the tumor was focally extending to the distal urethral and proximal bladder resection margin. also extended to within less than 0.1 centimeter, that's one millimeter, from the posterior soft tissue resection margin, and the tumor occupies approximately 90% of the prostate. So he has only 10% normal prostate. It also presented with extensive perineural invasion and extra prostatic adipose tissue invasion. What happened to his PSA? You don't have one yet? I don't have one. That was my, I was going to bring that later. And the Gleason score remained seven, you said? Yes. It didn't change? It, it wasn't did, upgraded? It did not change. Any other thoughts about this case? Had a very similar case of a 43-year-old gentleman, similar, PSA is in the 40s. And interestingly, my recent case broke our tumor volume record. Our pathologists have been doing this visual estimate of percent involvement of the gland. And your 90% breaks the record. The highest I have is 85%, which is really way out on the bell-shaped curve. When you consider the average tumor volume is about 7%. So when you're out on the 90 percentile range, it's badness. Now, interestingly, I think Dr. O brings up a key point. In my guy, where the tumor volume was 85% and all the biopsies were positive, his initial three-month PSA was 1.3. I still believe that the surgery was a reasonable first step in the multidisciplinary management scheme, but we didn't cure him with the surgery. And unfortunately, that made him ineligible for a couple of post-op clinical trials. Dan George was going to offer him, I'm blocking on which trial, but it did require patients to get to an undetectable PSA. And I'd be very interested to see what this guy's post-op PSA, I'll bet in that it's not likely to be undetectable. Dr. Sunanar? Generally speaking, perhaps a little naively, I think there's some data, SWAG EORTC, looking at salvage versus adjuvant radiation, that local failure is still pretty significant. So intuitively, I would think, no matter what we're doing systemically, these young patients should receive surgery plus radiation, despite what we see pathologically, in a sense that 
hitting them with two local therapies may offer some significant benefit. I mean, I was interested to hear about your neoadjuvant radiation trial. I think no matter what the pathology is going to be in this 48-year-old patient, I would intuitively tell them there is going to be a survival benefit, a distant metastatic-free survival benefit with adjuvant radiation. And I just wanted to hear your thoughts. Judd? You know, I tend to agree. The only dilemma we'll face in our multi-D clinic sometime is that the margin status. So even our radiation oncology colleagues, if the patient has the radical prostatectomy, and if you get negative margins, even with some extra capsular extension, sometimes they'll even themselves question the value of post-op radiation. Now, in this particular case that you presented, he had positive margins at the bladder neck and at the apex. In his case, the bladder neck margins concern me the most because that is a sign of locally advanced disease and high volume disease where it actually spreads into the bladder neck. Apical margins could go either way. The apical area is difficult sometimes for the pathologist to assess, but the bladder neck margins in his case would lean me more towards the radiotherapy. I mean, I was impressed though that there was only a very microfocal positive margin posterior laterally. So I think they technically did a very good job but I would tend to radiate because of the bladder neck margins in his case. Kind of on a broader philosophical scale to answer your question, I think in general I share the same opinion that aggressive local regional control of disease may have an impact on long-term outcomes. I think it's been shown in other cancers, lung cancer, rectal cancer, and breast cancer. But I think the argument, and this gets to some of the other things that have been brought up, is whether every patient should get both modalities. And Dr. Mal earlier had mentioned that, you know, 65 was kind of the age where he starts to think radiation might be reasonable as a primary modality. I think There's no radiation professor here with us, but speaking for them, I might say that in the last decade, the ability to deliver radiation with higher doses, more accurately with lower toxicity, has just continued to improve. And I might personally say that while I agree with you completely that local control is a key to long-term progression-free and overall survival in this disease, that whether you need surgery followed by radiation or whether patients, let's say we made this guy five years older, maybe seven years older, was he well-served or was he better served by a combination of surgery followed by radiation, or could his outcome kind of long-term have been comparable if he had received IMRT with a reasonable dose with hormones. So that's a harder question to answer. I think we have to play it individually. I would agree with you in general that when we see 45, 50, you know, 55-year-old men in general who have cancers that even if you cannot cure them locally with surgery, still I would err on the benefit of the doubt because we believe that surgery is a very good local control even if they're not cured. But I think that there are situations where people clearly do not have local disease where they may have a disease burden outside of the prostate that's so significant, fixed tumors, rectal involvement where a surgeon just can't debulk adequately. And in that situation, I think you know radiation has to be the primary modality.